Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Keith Basil, GM Edge Business Unit at SUSE. Keith is an expert in cloud compliance, Kubernetes, OpenStock, cloud, edge, and decentralized architectures, among other specialties. In this conversation, he and Matt discuss K3S, the tiny edge, and the impact that SUSE hopes to have at the edge. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations, across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so that you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting delltechnologies.com slash simplify your edge for more information or click on the link in the show notes. Two years ago, when I started the Over the Edge podcast, it was all about edge computing. That's all anybody could talk about. But since then, I've realized the edge is part of a much larger revolution. That's why I'm pretty proud to be one of the founding leaders of a nonprofit organization called the Open Grid Alliance, or OGA. The OGA is all about incorporating the best of edge technologies across the entire spectrum of connectivity, from the centralized data center to the end user devices. The Open Grid will span the globe and it will improve the performance and economics of new services like private 5G and smart retail. If you want to be part of the Open Grid movement, I suggest you start at opengridalliance.org, where you can download the original Open Grid manifesto and learn about the organization's recent projects and activities, including the launch of its first innovation zone in Las Vegas, Nevada. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Keith Basil, GM Edge Business Unit at SUSE. Hey, Basil, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It's good to be with you. Yeah, likewise. So one of my favorite questions to get people started is to ask them, how did you actually get into technology? Wow. So I've always been sort of a geek. I've been in computers, interested in computers rather, from a very young age. I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. And fortunately, the Alexandria public school system was the first school system in Virginia to have computers in the classroom. So from sixth grade until now, I've always been in front of a computer, in front of a keyboard, typing something. So. That's where it all started. Was it more of a, as a user or more, or as an engineer? Started out as a user. I am reluctant to say this, but I, I was a hacker for a while up into my mid-teens. And I taught myself Unix. I always had oddball computers. I had to started out with an old Atari 600XL, migrated to an Amiga 1000. I, I had a 400 and 800. Oh, I know those days. <laughs> okay. So totally, yeah. Yeah. And I ran one of the largest underground BBSs back in the day. So you could probably wow. tell where that's going. Yeah. Oh, well, thank God the statute of limitations has expired. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Okay. So how did you go from hacking and it sounds like maybe a little gray and dark work into the industry? Great question. So I, I went to college, came down to Norfolk State University, entered into the computer science program there. And in my senior year, this is when the internet started booming. I got together with three of my friends and we did an internet service provider startup. And that's when my transition from offensive to defensive on the computer security side really took effect. And it just took off from there. We did a lot of first time things on the internet. Like what? What's an example? Wow. <laughs> this is a little bit morbid, but we put the first funeral home on the internet. <laughs> so. That was a pretty amazing story because it was actually interesting from a business case because the guy that we put online, he basically disintermediated the entire siloed nature of the funeral home business because he was selling caskets for cheaper than the wholesale price that were being sold to other regions, which is crazy. 
So he had other funeral directors ordering directly from him versus going to Batesville Casket Company at the time. So this is an amazing story. But I've had this kind of Forrest Gump kind of trip through the internet because of things like that. I helped Johnny Cochran do his first ever online chat after the OJ trial. I used to run Christmas.com, the internet's number one holiday site back in the day. There's a lot. That's that's really, that's really cool. So what was your pathway to SUSE? So SUSE is a German company. What was your pathway into SUSE? So being in the internet service provider business, I had a hosting company and we started getting into virtualization. And because of the sites that we ran were so high volume, we started to understand how to scale out capabilities to meet the traffic demand, right? So I parlayed that into consulting and I went back to my security roots eventually and worked with a, a handful of companies in the DC metro area to build a secure cloud at the time. This is around 2009. And I got picked up by Time Warner Cable, helped them transform their internet business, the B2B side. And then I went to cloud scaling and got really deep into cloud. I'm very appreciative of the time that I spent with cloud scaling because those guys were wicked smart. They really hammered in this idea of simplicity scales. And then from there, I was asked to join Red Hat as one of the first product managers in OpenStack. So cloud scaling was one of the OpenStack company startups trying to do OpenStack at the time. So that's where my parlay into OpenStack and all things cloud and Kubernetes kind of started with the Red Hat transition. Yeah. And then how did you end up at SUSE? So after seven and a half years of good work at Red Hat, I went to Rancher because of the popularity of K3S. And I kind of went back to my academic roots and looked at the decentralized cloud, like decentralized services, lots of academic brainstorming around that. And I saw K3S and I thought it was just kind of a brilliant piece of software. So I wanted to be involved in that. And one of my meetings in a, in a DOD meeting, I ran into Shannon and we started talking about coming on board at Rancher and we negotiated and we came to terms and I joined Rancher as VP of Edge Solutions for Rancher at the time. And then I think about six weeks later, I was VP of all the product for Rancher and then SUSE acquired us. And then that began my journey at SUSE. Gotcha. Gotcha. So for those of my audience that don't know some of those terms that you threw out, what is K3S? K3S is a project started by Darren Shepard, one of the co-founders and chief technical officer of Rancher at the time. It is basically a software project to shrink down and minimize Kubernetes where it's packaged as a single binary. And basically you run one command and you have a CNCF certified Kubernetes distro at your beck and call right there locally on your machine. And it's a great tool for development. And that was the original intent of K3S was to aid in developing another project, which Darren was working on at the time. But what happened was when it was released, we started seeing a lot of uptake by hobbyists and also people experimenting with Kubernetes in very low resourced environments. So that, that was the beginning of the whole thing. And it just went viral, if you will, from there. How does K3S and maybe some of the other technologies that Rancher developed or SUSE developed help us at the edge? Well, I use this term in a different podcast. I'm going to reuse it here because it's very appropriate. And this is directly from Darren Shepard. He said that K3S removes the cognitive overload of standing up Kubernetes, right? So everybody knows who Kelsey Hightower is, and he wrote a guide on GitHub about how to stand up Kubernetes the hard way, right? And it's a great set of exercises to go through to learn the ins and outs of Kubernetes and all the components and parts. But you don't want to stand up Kubernetes the hard way every single time, right? And so what K3S represents is basically Kubernetes the easy way. And again, one command line and you're good to go. That's great. And so 
let's step back a little bit. So when you talk about the edge, when you talk about the edge at SUSE, how do you think about it? How do your customers think about it? And how do you think about it? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the first things that we needed to do is set a baseline taxonomy for how we approach the edge, because you can't really have a meaningful conversation without that, right? So in looking at the edge, I, in talking to customers, I always talk to customers, I'm still a product manager at the core, right? So I have this kind of product manager driven mentality with me at all times. So in talking to customers, we found out that there were largely three segments of edge that were emerging for the use cases. And the first one we call the near edge. We call it near because it's nearest to the core services, those cloud providers, regional data centers, and things so like that. it's farthest from the edge. Farthest from the edge, yes. But that near edge segment we found is that it's the realm of the communication service providers, right? So you'll see all types of use cases predominantly or dominated rather by the 5G RAN rollout globally and all the kind of complementary services that service providers or communications providers are doing in that space. So that's really clean cut for us. Typically, for edge locations, there's some type of access device. There's a line of DMARC. We call that a line of DMARC between going from the near edge to what we call the far edge. And this is where all the excitement and diversity lies at the far edge. And there are a tremendous amount of use cases there. We could probably spend the rest of the time talking about that. And then within that far edge location, we have what we call the tiny edge. And this is basically the industrial IoT space, right? Or the fourth industrial revolution is happening at the tiny edge space. These are devices, actuators, IP cameras, Devices that are too small to run a full-blown operating system, Kubernetes, and then containers on top of that. But they do have software. Largely, they're protocol-driven. And so our mission is to reach out, discover those devices, pull in data, push data, and then bring those into a cloud-native ecosystem using something like K3S in that far-edge location. Yeah, I see. And so when you think of near-edge and far-edge, help me understand it in terms of actual distance. Because I think of the core, the core could be in Seattle when I'm in Dallas. Yeah. For you guys, where are these edges typically? In reality, distance doesn't really matter to us. I know some early people define edge by latency, which I thought was a total fallacy because you have, you've got telecom. Why, why is that? Why do you think latency doesn't matter? There's several reasons. In the near edge in the telecom space, pretty much all the networks are fiber. So the latency is very low to begin with, right? So when you're looking at the, the RAN deployments, latency, precision time protocol, all of that is critical for maintaining the 5G network, right? So they have that stuff nailed and it's, it's a concern, but it's addressed, right? In the far edge scenario, it doesn't really matter because each location we treat as a separate independent failure domain. We want to grab data at that location, process it at that location, and then lazily push it back to the core. So this is why I don't think latency is that important. We've not really seen it in terms of our customers because they adopt that same philosophy that the remote location is that failure domain. Yeah, so I can see having having a failure domain where it's more store and forward data reduction, that sort of thing. And that should happen maybe at a regional level or city level. And then you do have these gradations down into it. And you talk about the access edge. Mm -hmm. But there's quite a difference in performance between something that's on-premises and something that's not on-premises in general. Yes. And so how do you think about that? And then what's the difference between on-premises and edge? To me, there's not really any difference. If you look at our customer deployments, let's take a grocery store, for example. Each store would be a far edge location, number one, according to our taxonomy. Number two, we push a complete Kubernetes cluster to that location. All of the in-store applications run locally on that cluster. 
and we minimize any external connectivity reliance for those applications to run. So to us, it's very clean. And we try to always minimize any external dependency outside of that failure domain. And that's what makes the storage independent. Now we do have a command and control situation where these clusters phone home to something like Rancher and basically ask the question, do you have something for me to do? Is there something that I need to reconcile? Is there a new application? If there is, they pull it down, they reconcile it and it just runs. So this is why I have philosophical discussions around the latency question and the way topologies at the edge are being deployed. And so to me, that hermetically sealed failure domain, if you will, ideally, is the same as an edge deployment. It is the fundamental tenet of an edge deployment. Can you talk about a retail example, like a real world retail example? Yes, there's two. One that we've publicly talked about, which is Home Depot. Home Depot is running K3S in all 2000 plus of their stores. So that's a great example. There's a grocery store that I can't mention their name just yet, but they are a customer. They're running K3S in every single grocery store. There's going to be more about that at SusaCon later this year. So those are two examples where each one of those locations is built as a failure domain unto itself. Yeah. So let's talk about the kind of applications that, that are running at the edge in, say, Hope Depot. What does a store like that need that requires Kubernetes? Well, I'll talk about the applications generically from a retail perspective. So you'll have companies running, in some cases, point-of-sale systems that have been containerized, running on K3S, for example. You'll also have inventory management running at that store. You may even have some advanced use cases where they are analyzing foot traffic on a given aisle based on camera traffic and things like that. So the sky's the limit there. And what's really cool is that some customers are thinking so far advanced where they are tuning the operation of the store based on external parameters like traffic at a given time of day, the mm. weather, things like that. So it's really cool to see some of the application of the external data going into let's call it retail operations driven by something like Kubernetes. Right. And I don't think of a Home Depot as being a particularly friendly environment for servers that you might find in a data center. Where do you put the servers in a store? Well, typically the machines, they could either be off the shelf boxes that you would find in a data center in most cases, or they can be ruggedized. And that's the beauty about K3S is that it runs on Intel, runs on ARM, and whatever the hardware is out there, we would most likely support it. So it's up to the customer to give us a bill of materials for their hardware, and then we go forth and deploy. Yeah, I see. Okay. And then can you talk about like other use cases that are driving demand? It sounds like there's a lot of retail-based use cases. So everything from automated checkout to automated inventory to loss prevention to traffic analysis, shelf analysis, all these things. What other industries and, and demand use cases are you seeing sort of drive this industry? We're starting to see a pretty good pickup in healthcare. Let me pause there because I'm going to come back to it. So healthcare is number one. We have a business unit called SUSA RGS, Rancher Government Solutions, that is covering our U.S. public sector space. So there's a lot of DOD and IC opportunities mm. and really cool edge use cases, most of which we can't talk about. But in that space, you'll see K3S, for example, and, and Kubernetes being deployed as far as satellites in space, all the way down to backpacks and soldiers. So I love talking to those guys because every day is a different day. Every use case is different and it's so exciting given the diversity there. But coming back to the healthcare space, what we're finding is that there's increased demand for what we call mission critical applications at the edge. So these are healthcare related support functions in terms of software, supporting the doctors, the healthcare providers, helping with the equipment in that space. So 
lots of excitement happening there at the edge. How do you see your customers dealing with these two posing trends, I think? So one of them is, I want to get out of the data center business. I started my cloud Mm -hmm. migration. I love the idea of shutting down my data centers and moving more of my workloads (laughs) off cloud. And then you're coming to me and say, oh, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) In order to do these cool new applications at the edge, you need to have a data center again. How are you seeing that tension being resolved? I don't see it as, as tension as much as evolution because you need to have some centralized control plane services for your deployed footprint. But the good thing about the investment in cloud from a people and process perspective is that by reusing Kubernetes and the container-based approaches that we found in the cloud at the edge, there's not a lot of retooling or reskilling. We may have to consider a smaller machine in terms of CPU and memory for that container to run in. But by and large, you can use the same processes like GitOps, right? Or using Rancher to manage the upgrade of downstream clusters or using Rancher now to manage the lifecycle management of the operating system to upgrade the operating system at those remote locations. So you're going to have that centralized presence. And the beautiful thing about Rancher is that Rancher ultimately is a Helm chart, is a Helm application that can be installed on any Kubernetes CNCF certified Kubernetes distro. So you can put it in Azure, Google, AWS, or your own gear in your own data center. And so once you have that in place, you can then manage the footprint for the edge. Now, now if I run Rancher in a cloud environment, so the cloud companies all have their own way of selling you Kubernetes, right? Is Rancher an alternative to those? So like I would run it on EC2 instances, Amazon, instead of using, what is it, AKS that that Amazon? Is that how I use it? Or do do you actually deploy it on, on AKS? Yes, you can deploy it on AKS, or if you want to spin up your own EC2 instances and deploy it as if it was on virtual machines, you could do that as well. But the beautiful thing about Rancher is that it's agnostic amongst the providers, meaning that we have built-in provider support to directly talk to the hosted versions of Kubernetes to manage those clusters, to manage that service rather. So if you spin up Rancher on EKS, for example, you can then turn around and deploy a cluster and manage a cluster on GKE, for example, or AKS mm-hmm. on Azure, or mm-hmm. your own your own gear on your own gear and your own on your own premises. So that's the beautiful thing about Rancher is that we don't lock you into one of those providers. We give you the ultimate flexibility to match the control plane with the profile of your deployment. Okay. So so one of the things that it sounds like Rancher can help an enterprise do is look at all of the places where they might want to run workloads, whether it's in the cloud or across multiple clouds or on a constrained device or on just a regular server that's in my private data center or in a co-location tennis or anything to treat that maybe not quite as one fabric, but at least one set of deployment patterns that I can do. Is that a correct way of thinking about it? That, that is a very good way to think about it. What else? So, 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 so healthcare, what else, what else are you seeing? What else is driving demand? For us, the next wave is to address what we call the tiny edge, as I said earlier. So the industrial IoT space we think is going to represent the most significant amount of growth for the edge ecosystem in total. So later this year, we will be releasing a product that does just that. And ideally, we'd like to have certified protocol support for the top protocols in that space. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Where do you see SUSE going with this? That's a great question. We've basically charted a really strong path in this space. We've kind of set the standard in open source around the complete full stack management. And again, let me just recap what we've done. So Rancher, by default, before the edge became a thing, Mm -hmm. 
was managing the applications, right? Deploying applications and, and managing clusters. It's really important to understand that because those two things remove a lot of overhead for our customers. So we can manage the application, number one, with Rancher, and we can manage the lifecycle of Kubernetes. So as we know, Kubernetes is a very fast cadence upstream. Every three months, there's a new version. So it allows us to keep up with the pace of the innovation going on upstream. The third thing that we've done, which came out of the edge requirements directly, was managing the operating system below that as well. So imagine like a retail store chain with a thousand stores, just to keep the number simple. Typically, they would run three nodes at each store. And so if there's a new CVE or a new kernel update for the Linux that's running in that cluster, how do you upgrade that, right? And so we have answers to that. It's built into our capabilities to do kind of a rolling window upgrade of the operating system underneath that cluster while keeping those containers running for the customer. So those are really strong things that we don't see anybody else really doing sincerely in the open source world. And we want to maintain that lead. So we've built that, right? And so now the next step for, of our evolution is to continue our market share in signing customers and growing that business, but also move into the industrial IoT space, move into the telco space. We released a set of cloud native solutions and positioning called ATIP, the Advanced Telco Infrastructure Platform. This is all about giving cloud native edge solutions to our telco customers globally. And that is wonderful positioning. And we're going to continue to, to mature that. And then finally, the industrial IoT space I mentioned earlier, we're going to go after that pretty strongly. So we have a lot of opportunity in front of us, and we're very excited. We're building and continue to build a very strong team of folks that are committed to the space. And I'm very proud of the folks that we have in the chair, and, and we're actually growing to this day. You mentioned this telco platform. You have a lot of competition there. You're competing with your old boss, Red Hat. Yes. They have a telco platform. VMware has got one of the most popular telco platforms. What is it that your platform does that the incumbents maybe don't do as well? Well, let's look at the timeline. So in the past couple of years, most of those people that you just named have been doing virtual machine-based telco solutions. So VNFs, right? Virtual network functions based on VMs. So when the clock reset to go cloud native, it was basically the flag dropped and it was a free-for-all. So we got in at that time point and we are a legitimate contender in that space because we have started with a CNF-based model, a cloud-native network functions model. And so in the telco space, it's all about passing packets as fast as possible. We talked about it. We alluded to it a bit about the latency issue between the towers and, and the CUs, for example. So we have to make sure that things like SRIOV, Persistent Time Protocol, DPDK, all of that works flawlessly within the Kubernetes and cloud-native environment. And so we, we're doing that. In ATIP, the Adaptive Telco Infrastructure Platform product set, is designed to address those specific and tight requirements we see in the telco space. You're going down the path of being a platform for Open RAN when Open RAN actually becomes commercially viable. Yes, we are. And there's been an association of European telcos under the banner of Silva, S-Y-L-V-A. And basically what those guys have done is agreed to come together to build an open source reference architecture for their RAN use cases. And we are actively a part of the Silva community to bring our software to the table and to take that reference architecture and do a SUSE implementation thereof. And we think that's a winning strategy for those guys, because once they see it working and have vendors come to the table to offer a Silva reference architecture, they can just deploy that across their telco footprint. Does the SUSE tooling have any, anything that makes it easier for me to run 
to build multi-tenant applications? Not really. So if you think about SUSE and the edge software that we provide, we are the plumbers. We're in the basement. So we're the infrastructure guys. So anything multi-tenant from an application perspective would be on, be the responsibility or within the scope of the customer providing that particular application. I was doing a, a map in Las Vegas and you do like the smaller retail and there's 65 7-Elevens, 23 McDonald's, 42 Starbucks. And I just wonder if putting a small data center in every one of those makes as much sense as maybe putting three locations in the city and having failover domains within that, but then service those over the last mile. It's an interesting set of trade-offs, right? It is. Yeah, because I do know that so enterprises, I hear them all the time. I want to be out of the data center business, right? I'd like to use that space for my store because every inch is precious. I've already filled my equipment closet, my telephone closet with this stuff. And it's a maintenance nightmare because my guy has to go all the way around every time something breaks. So I'd like to be out of that business. And then also I want to buy things with OpEx. I want to buy like, like it's coming from the cloud. I don't want to own the servers. I want Amazon to own the servers or whatever that happens to be. And so there's this desire for, anything as a service, because you want your vendors to take on some of the risk, right? Mm -hmm. And not just the vendors that make the servers, but like maybe the folks that make the smart inventory loss prevention, like per camera per month, not like a million dollars up front, because that's how enterprises want to buy. And so there's a potentially interesting shift here where as we take the cloud and the cloud economics farther down, you literally could have Amazon's cloud on the other side of your wall. And then it's essentially as if it's on-premises. And with fiber, you're right, you can get pretty close. Yes. I mean, 10 miles, you can 100 microseconds. It's nothing. And so it's really interesting to think what's going to change. There's probably some cultural changes, too, that would have to happen. Like, you'd have to feel comfortable letting it go off your premises. Because, like, the store's got to stay up, so I have to say that. So tell me, react to that. Yeah, 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 great. Store's got to stay up. That's the number one statement that you made there. So... We have had some customers try to do this kind of expanded failure domain where there's mm -hmm. some centralized service managing some number of stores. The problem with that is when the thing goes down, they all go down. The crater there is pretty large. Also, not all stores have access to the same level of connectivity. We've got retail customers that are on T1s, for example, because they're out in a very rural location. Right. They're not going to have fiber to the, to the store. Yeah. Second, on the service providers, the cloud providers, rather, the pricing that we do is order of magnitudes cheaper than we've seen quotes from the three big providers for the same service. It's just very heavy for those guys to get involved on a per store location and keep the price reasonable or to have exceptions to that pricing. In fact, we even took the approach last year to be very flexible and to really understand how the retail customers, and in, in, for the most part, want to consume pricing. And everything in that world is a fixed price per location. So we actually pivoted and changed our SKU model to be per location-based pricing so that mm -hmm. when they spin up five new stores, they automatically know what the software and infrastructure cost is going to be without this variability and flexibility that you come from on-demand pricing. They're telling us this is how they want to buy. So obviously okay. we're going to react to that. And it's very hard for the cloud providers to pivot as fast as we did in that space. I see. That's really interesting. These early customers that are mm -hmm. that are building out the, you know, putting in edge servers with K3S in all their stores, right? That's a big bet. Do they have their own development teams? How do you go from, okay, I want to put some ruggedized servers in all my grocery stores to yeah. 
who's making all these applications actually work and running the rancher and running the K3S and who's doing all that? How does that all work? Those guys are doing it in-house. And in fact, that's really, yes. And this is why our solution represents so much value for them because they don't have to worry about it. We're checking the boxes. We're doing full lifecycle management of all the infrastructure. And then their mission at that point is to work on the application that provides the best business value for that particular location and push that application, push that business value, if you will, to the edge where it does the best good for the organization. But this is what they specialize in and this is what they want to specialize in and quite frankly, what they should be because any tweak or efficiency or any new innovation for the application there is going to be valuable to their business from a monetary or competitive situation. And that's what they should be supremely focused on. That's super interesting. And I can see, well, I... I, I, Let me me, me say one more thing too, because there's one philosophy that's driving me and, and our team that's probably not obvious here. We expect Kubernetes to be everywhere. We expect it to be fully commoditized. So it's like electricity, right? You expect you to plug into something and it just works. This is our mission. We want to be the just works people so that whatever you're building in terms of, let's say, electrical appliance, just plug it in and it just works. So I I think I wanted to get that across because that's what's really driving our team and our mission and how we think about what's going on at the edge. When you say full lifecycle management, do you also help manage the lifecycle of the applications that are running on top of? Yes. I see. I see. Okay. All right. So, and back to what I was asking about the skill set. I mean, grocery stores aren't typically able to hire the same. You would be surprised. You would be surprised. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Because I just came from a meeting with, with that grocery store customer and those guys are rock stars. I mean, they are Kubernetes experts. They're security Hmm. guys. And it's just really cool working with them because they know exactly what they want. They see the value proposition. They know what their mission is and they know where the organizational value is with those applications. And they're keen on just pushing that out to the stores to keep their competitive positioning in place. Yeah, that's really interesting. I once had uh, a senior vice president from City. I won't name who he was. And we were talking about why his team needs easier interfaces to technical things, right? He wanted a visual dashboard as opposed to a CLI front end. And I'm like, I haven't heard that before. And he's like, well, let me explain it to you. I have more developers than Google, but I don't have any Google developers. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. 300 people in Des Moines writing Java. Sure. What's interesting is, so let's imagine the retail store of the future, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Automated checkout, automated loss prevention, automated inventory, a camera every 22 inches on the ceiling, AI inferencing, all this stuff. No one retailer is going to have the people to build all those applications. They're going to have to bring third-party applications on. So how are you seeing the enterprises wrestle with, maybe they don't have to do that now, they're building everything in-house, but how do you see them dealing with it? Okay, well, how how are we going to bring third-party applications on? Or are those just like, oh, that's going to be a different box? How are they thinking about that? It's not a different box. What's happening there, and this is really speaks to our go-to-market strategy in the industrial IoT space. So again, we see ourselves as infrastructure providers. And so we want to provide the infrastructure glue to talk to these various devices. All the devices you just named, we want to have some connectivity to those devices to plumb them into the container native, the cloud native world, right? And so in terms of go to market, this is why we see our partnerships being very important for the growth and future of our business, because we would love to partner with the camera providers, these random sensor provider to let them enable and build their value on top of our infrastructure using the plumbing that we have, so to speak, and then in turn resell that to their customers downstream. 
it's a very broad market and we're very excited to be slotted where we are and positioned where we are today. Yeah, I get that. That is kind of exciting. You know, that you, that, that you go all the way up to the applications. Are you opinionated about the hardware? I mean, it sounds like you run across all different levels of hardware, but like how, when you say infrastructure, I think of not just the infrastructure software, but I think of the hardware that's running on. How do you guys view the hardware layers? This is the beautiful thing about the acquisition of Rancher into SUSE. SUSE has 30 years of Linux experience, enterprise-grade Linux. I mean, we have security certifications around common criteria. We have NIST-validated security modules. We have a secure supply chain and build system internal to SUSE that is common criteria certified. And so out of all of that machinery comes a hardened enterprise-grade Linux. And so with that Linux, we have past performance and certification for the OEMs, for the Dells, the Lenovo's of the world going forward. And so we can parlay that, those set of artifacts and that certification into the bill of materials that we see emerging in the edge space. It's great to have those pillars available for a customer value. If I'm a customer of yours, am I typically using your Linux, your SUSE Linux? If you want the full stack management where we manage all the way down to the OS, today we suggest that you use SLE Micro, which is a lightweight, immutable, edge-based distro of, of SLES, SUSE Linux Enterprise Server. It's a lighter weight OS that's designed to run on ARM and Intel and have the footprint that's small enough to run on these low resource machines. So it is the perfect fit for running K3S on top of that, and then your, your cloud-native apps on top of that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really cool. Now, SUSE and Rancher, I guess now part of SUSE, have had long-term commitment to, to open source. Can you tell me SUSE's view towards open source and what your position to the market is regarding that? Yeah, so everything we do is open source, and everything we will do is open source. It is 100%, like Red Hat. Okay. 100%. It's in our DNA. Even, for example, I'll give you an extreme example of just how open source we are. So about a year and a half ago, we acquired a company called New Vector, which is a cloud-native security suite of tools. Very good software, and it approaches some zero-trust ideas that we have, and it's just great software. That was proprietary. So we spent money on a company that had proprietary software, and within the span of, I think, four months, we open-sourced all of that software and made it free to wow. the world. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And what do people buy from you? I'm asking that question kind of intentionally <laughs> sounding naive, but like, sure. I think it's useful for people who don't live in this world that you and I live in to understand like, okay, well, what am I buying from you if it's all free and available? What you're buying from us is support. So let's look at, let's look at a typical stack. So if you go from the bottom, so I mentioned Sleep Micro, our kind of lightweight enterprise grade Linux. That is probably the most stable piece of software in our entire stack, right? So the lifecycle on that is measured in years, right? When you move up to K3S, you're looking at a life cycle in quarters. Yeah. Okay. And then you have your application and all the configuration for the Kubernetes environment and tweaks and things that you have for your Kubernetes. So when you get a support subscription from us, you're effectively buying an insurance policy that helps you keep up with the varying life cycles of the components in that stack. And we support your particular configuration. So it's not only day one support, but it's also the maturation and evolution of each of the components in those layers of that stack that you get support for. So we're walking with you hand in hand through the journey as this open source software evolves over time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I would also think that you mentioned security, your background, security, and you mentioned security a couple of times regarding SUSE. And I would think that if I was a retailer, one of the things most important to me is like, well, what happens if you discover a zero day bug in exactly. Kubernetes, right? Somebody in the community is eventually going to get around to fixing it, but I need it fixed today, now. 
Yes. And so is that part of what you do is like just the response for things like bug vulnerability fixes and things like that? Yeah. An example, if you look at our Linux group, there's a really strong product security response team. And many times when you see a zero day or something, it will be already known to the SUSE folks, the Linux team and embargoed, right? And this has happened across industries in between vendors as well, right? So yeah. we share that kind of private embargoed information and we work on fixes. And so when that zero day does become publicly known, we would have already supplied a patch for you at that point to make sure you're not vulnerable to that issue. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, interesting. Now, we talked about the industrial IoT. We didn't talk about smart factories. What are you seeing in, in the machinery, the smart factory realm? Because it seems like that's a, I mean, it's resurgent in the U.S. in factories, and it seems like a really rich opportunity to improve the efficiency of the whole manufacturing process by collecting and analyzing a bunch of data. What are you seeing in the marketplace? Is it becoming real? It is becoming real. And quite frankly, we want to be the team that accelerates it being more real. So, so how do you do that? Yeah. There's some product strategy things that I probably won't get into here, but I will say that we are finishing up an internal effort to gauge which protocols are most widely adopted by which particular sub-industries. Do you mean like SCADA? Stuff like that. SCADA, OPC UA, MQTT, things like gotcha. that. Okay. So the, the whole gamut. And quite frankly, it is a maze of protocols. Some are decades old and very yeah. insecure, for example. Yeah. So that's a whole mess that we have to untangle. And require RS-232 cables. Correct, like you, correct, To use correct. with your Atari 600 XL. Exactly. So, so <laughs> imagine, if you will, having a Kubernetes node with the serial interface attached to it and, and bringing that into a cloud-native world. That's a whole thing, right? So, yeah. but we can do that. We have software that can do that that's upstream. And we're working with Microsoft on a project called Akri, A-K-R-I, that is all about bringing in attached devices to the nodes into a cloud-native world, as, as well as devices that are on the local network that we can discover and bring into the cloud-native What does that mean? Explain to me what that means. So, example. So, last year at the SUSECON keynote, I gave a talk where... We had on stage next to me a single node cluster running Sleep Micro K3S. We plugged in a camera to the USB port. Once that camera was recognized, the Ocri framework recognized that device. And according to the directives, it plugged that device into a container running a machine learning workload to recognize the patterns of video. So then I held up the SUSE plush doll. It recognized it as a SUSE plush doll and then popped up a QR code on the screen, for example. So. That gives you an idea of what could happen at the edge, but any of these sensors, actuators, cameras, they need to be harnessed to feed into the AI ML engines to do something useful at that point. So my mission is to create that plumbing. Yeah. So is Acri a general purpose protocol that theoretically any device, it sounds like it's like a helm chart for devices in a sense. This is what it sounds like to me. Like there's a description of what this device can do and what it is, and it comes through the physical coupling and then magic happens. Magic happens. So Opry, to your point, it is a framework that does just what you said. It's built by plugins. So you'll have a OPC UA plugin, an OnVIF plugin. And so Opry becomes smarter as you add more plugins. So this is one of the missions of our product and engineering teams is to make sure that we have plug-in, certified plug-in support and connectivity to these devices and device families through Opry. But Opry, to your point, is a Helm chart that you install locally on that local K3S cluster to go out and discover and bring those things into the cloud-native ecosystem. Let me see a plug-in. Do you mean a piece of software? 
that could detect that type of device? Yes, yes. A piece of software, a capability specific. It's a framework and has a developer's kit and I can write as many yes. device interfaces I want and those are plugins essentially that then, okay, then expand that. And, and all of that open source as well, something Microsoft is leading? 100%. It was started okay. by Microsoft. We are contributors to Aquary. We're going to continue to contribute to that ecosystem and we're going to build some of our industrial IoT products off of Aquary's capabilities in the fall. And how do you view observability and monitoring as you get distributed systems, right? And the farther they get away from each other, the more complex your operating environment and observability, especially as it approaches real time so that you can have predictive and redictive actions. Tell me how SUSE views that world and, and your role in it. That's a great question. It is a challenging problem. It's on our radar. I love it from a computer science perspective because the information architecture needed to Visualize something at scale is very hard. It's complex. We have under the Rancher ecosystem, a project called Opni, which is AI driven kind of observability and analysis. We're going to build on Opni to do an edge version of observability at scale. So we just hired a few resources to focus specifically on this problem. I can't give you any timeline on when it will be available, but it is on our radar to deliver. And so my high level view is this. With one dashboard, no matter the scale, whether it's, you know, 500 remote locations or 20,000 remote locations, I want a person to be able to, within three clicks, be at the exact edge cluster and know exactly what's going on from an observability perspective with support for, support from rather, artificial intelligence and all of the data that we're collecting in that space. Again, it's an exciting project because I love the information architecture side of it. But it's complex. It's something that we're going to do. And we have some cool things in the works to bring to the world in that area. Yeah. I and mean, it seems to me that the only way to manage the exploding complexity is going to be with automation and tools. Yes. And the thing that's going to make the automation effective is lots of good data. So yes. we've learned. So, yeah. So that's a really interesting shift in the computer science world. Well, what's also interesting is durability started with software. And it moved from analytics, which is, okay, I can put a lens on top of this and look at what's yes. going on, to observability, which is like the thing just puts out data. That's what we do. We make our thing observable. That it's now descending all the way into hardware and network stuff. So, because you think about like, well, how do you maintain complex timing? Maybe it's not a radio unit, right? It's computerized lathe. Yeah, correct, correct. How do you maintain the timing that you need there? And I think that that real-time physical, operational OT data combined mm. with the sort of like what's going on at the software level is going to provide a really rich environment for people who like to play with this. I mean, I don't know what IBM autonomic systems, do you remember do you remember this? It's probably when you had your 600 XL. So IBM has been talking about this for years, which is like the systems, just the auto heal and all this. And I think finally, we might be getting to the point where we have enough data and enough processing power and we're good enough at AI slash ML to actually do this. I mean, the hyperscalers are doing some of it inside their large data centers, yeah. right? So yeah. you would think that you could distribute it across, you know, what's the difference between 50,000 cores in my data center and 50,000 cores, one core in each store? Sure. This is an evolution, right? And so yeah. there's steps. This is why I'm so excited about the industrial IoT space, because we have to get the connectivity to these devices so we, we can pull the data. Yes. Right? So that's step one, right? And the edge, quite frankly, is still very new, even though we've been in the game and building out the ecosystem for quite some time, for about two years, two, actually more than two years now, it's still very early. And so 
these steps need to take place in terms of maturation. And once we get the plumbing in place, then we can step back and say, okay, there's infrastructure observability and inference that we can do. And then there's application layer inference and observability that we can do. The two are very different, but we have to get the plumbing to the devices to inform the applications. Yeah, that's true. It's the same mechanism that you use to plug in your weird MQTT device could also be the mechanism that you use to plug in the data stream from your router. Yes, exactly. And that's what I like about Aukri is that it's very extensible. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. We'll put links in the, in the show notes so people can look at that. Okay, so the last part of the interview, you've been in this world a while. You're looking at what's happening in Edge today. And I think you're a little bit like me. You're just like, <laughs> why can't it go faster? It's like, you can yeah. see all the possibility. If you could play super being and look out into the future and think about dominoes that need to fall, right? For something to become mm -hmm. massive. Like, what, which dominoes would you nudge? Like, which things would you nudge to help this industry advance more quickly? That's a heavy question because there's a lot of parts to it. I think what we're doing in the industrial IoT space is very important. So I would double down on that. I think we're on the right path there. Obviously, we could all use twice the number of resources and, and funding, but that's life. But I think if the open source tooling was in more people's hands, I think that'd be a really great start for how, us. How would we get it in more people's hands? By doing podcasts like this, sir. <laughs> Informing the people. That's a big part of it. Just the awareness. In fact, the software that we're talking about, the, the ability to manage the lifecycle of the operating system. Mm -hmm. and I talked to a lot of analysts about a year ago. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They thought it was slideware. And we had to, had to show them that it was real. So that's, that's surprising. That's surprising because <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know if we're just too advanced or what, but it, I mean, it's, it's amazing to us. And we, well, we can, Chrome has been doing it for years and the, I guess core OS was kind of the yes, first that I exactly. heard about it with this, like, exactly. but that's, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe that's maybe in the enterprise world, it's still, oh no, nothing yeah. happens automatically on my watch. And it's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you can't move as quickly as a machine. So get used to it. Yeah, just getting more awareness and the software in more people's hands. And then I think, I'm not really sure how it's going to play out, but I know all the movement that you're seeing in AI is going to be complementary to what we're doing at scale and building better inference and grounding heavily on that grounding part, grounding the AI engines into a customer's specific requirements or operational mode, if you will. I think that's going to be a huge game changer for us going forward. And then accelerate to us getting to that better end state. Yeah, I, th I think I think of the day when every device, I mean, every device that has a microprocessor can intelligently connect to the network, right? Like as we'll be talking about with the you know IoT, that's been the dream, but we don't yet have that. We're not there yet, right? Like our phones kind of do that, right? You plug the SIM card in and just like magically attaches to the network and maybe your Alexa does that too. But there's so many things in our life that just, it's like the blinking clock in the VCR 20 years ago, right? <laughs> like, why can't this just automatically set the time? Yeah. But but once we get to that point, you're right, there's going to be a, a massive explosion of just new use cases. I do like the sort of, I'm not sure I like the tiny edge, but I get it. One of the folks I had on the podcast back when I used to ask, how do you define the edge? I don't really ask that anymore. Mm -hmm. But he had a great answer. It was the edge is where the internet meets the physical world. And that's not completely true because like your near edge is sort of a location that has certain constraints and all that. But I liked the idea of what we're really doing at the edge. 
is we're connecting to the physical world. And whether that's to like collect information about the air quality in this room, mm-hmm. or it's to effectuate a, a little device that, I don't know, changes the route of water or something, right? It doesn't really matter, like whatever it is. But it is where that the physical world meets the internet. Yeah, it, it is in a way that smartphones and computers don't, because those are just like intermediaries. No, this is like the actual world connecting. It's like if I could plug my desk into the Oh, internet. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. The, the physical layer is now connected. It's an interesting definition. I slightly disagree with it because the physical devices and things that we're connecting, to me, the internet is public internet. So just to be clear, I've been in situations where that is never, ever going to happen, right? So... And plus, even in the commercial space, connecting these devices, they're still within a private network. They're never the twain shall meet in terms of public internet. So it's a nuance, but I'm calling it out, but it is what it is, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. So Abapsal, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And I, I definitely am inspired by the idea of let's teach more people about this. Let's get more people into this world. So thank you very much for being on the show. Okay, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.